Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 55 of Unmasked. I'm your host, Neil Getzlow. As always, I thank you for coming on this journey with me. To my faithful listeners and viewers out there, now we are on YouTube. Um, hey, I'm so glad you're back this week. And if you are new to the Unmasked podcast, I'm so blessed that you're here. I encourage you to scroll through your podcast feed of the show and and listen to some of the older episodes. Uh, and for, for everybody, please check out the video component of this podcast over on YouTube. Follow my channel over there. I'll put a link to it in the audio show notes. And um, yeah, I would love to have you uh, to come over to YouTube and, and check out the show. We're going to be putting up some new content here going forward and, and trying to ramp things up on the video side of things as we go forward this spring. And you can always uh, learn more about my journey over at neilgetslow.com. And you can learn more about my journey as well as uh, my book, Unmasked, Conquering Sexual Sin and Walking in Victory. Now, uh, we, we did take a one-week break from the show last week. Uh, I happen to be traveling internationally for work. Okay, it was just Mexico. So it wasn't like I was on any sort of exotic, uh, faraway getaway. It was a simple three and a half hour plane ride uh, to Mexico. But it, it was a work trip. I thought I'd be able to get in a chance to to upload this episode, but I uh, didn't do it. So, you know, I was like, we're just going to take a hiatus for one week, one week only, but we're back this week and, and excited to, to press on and Let's jump into today's episode. We are talking to Kyla Lanier. Kyla is the co-founder of Truckers Against Trafficking, uh, an awesome organization, and they describe themselves as a, a mobile army of transportation professionals, and they're assisting law enforcement in the recognition and reporting of human trafficking in order to aid in the recovery of victims and the arrest of their perpetrators. And, and they literally do have an army of truckers across the U.S. who are who are now trained and looking for victims of sex trafficking. But what I really like about this organization is they also have a man-to-man campaign where they're providing information and resources to men uh, to warn them about the dangers of sex trafficking, talk about the impact that pornography plays in raising the demand for sex trafficked individuals. So it's a, it's a really cool program. We're going to get into all that this week. Uh, on episode number 55. And here we go. Unmasking the journey of Kyla Lanier and truckers against trafficking. Kyla, thank you so much for coming on the Unmasked podcast, now a video podcast. So I appreciate you being one of the, <laughs> being one of the early adopters. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, before we get started, why don't you just take uh, just a quick minute to introduce yourself and tell everybody um, what you're up to. Sure. So my name is Kyla Lanier. I'm co-founder and deputy director of Truckers Against Trafficking, which is a nonprofit organization that operates throughout North America. And our mission is to educate, equip, empower, and mobilize members of the trucking, bus, and energy sectors to recognize and report human trafficking. And my job specifically is focused on the public sector. So law enforcement, um, state agencies, and also our global expansion. So I know when sort of as we were emailing um, to, to set up this interview, I think you have a pretty interesting uh, faith journey to share. So um, I always like to hear from, from my guest if there is a faith journey to get you guys to talk about it. And so, uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. It sounds like you, you came from a, a very strong Christian family growing up, right? Yes. So I was born into a Christian home, um, definitely uh, devotionals and prayer every day at home. We went to church every Sunday. 
Um, and I even went to a private Christian school for from sixth grade through uh, senior year of high school. So lots of Bible class and chapel and things of that nature. I will say that I um, did get to the point where I was pretty rebellious um, and walked away from God. Uh, I, I always like to akin it to if you've ever seen Forrest Gump. When Lieutenant Dan is up on the top of the ship and he's yelling in the storm, that was my relationship with God for a, a nice period of time um, because I just I was struggling. And, you know, I do think sometimes it's important for us to come to a faith on our own terms and not just, you know, inherit it, if you will, from our families. Like we have to struggle with some of those those issues ourselves. Um and I did. I came back to um, a walk with God and, um, you know, certainly bumps along the way. But God is a gracious God and, you know, he always pulls you back. And And I would say that in my life, that's definitely been the piece. He's always pulled me back no matter what and given me the opportunity to do some really cool things as well. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the ministry that your, your family has. I think that obviously is probably had some influence in how your, you know, your adult career is gone, but yeah, I'd love to hear more about, about the ministry that, that your family is a part of. Well, um, the ministry that we started together is no longer, I mean, okay. that sort of came from that. Gotcha. So, um, when we, how truckers against trafficking or tat started was through my mom. She sent my sisters and I, I have three other sisters she sent us a book called uh, Not for Sale by David Batstone, which is like this good overview book of global domestic labor sex trafficking. And she was like, you all need to read this book. So um, you don't know my mom, but when she tells you to do something, you do it. So we all read the book. And I think we just were really stunned to learn that slavery still existed. You know, we knew that there was injustice. We knew that there was exploitation. But that idea, that concept was like, whoa. And so we got on the phone uh, for a conference call because we all lived in different states and we formed our first organization, which was Chapter 61 Ministries off of Isaiah 61. And we had the very lofty goal of ending human exploitation worldwide because, you know, you can do that when you have uh, full time jobs and children to raise. But yeah, we just sort of <laughs> dove in. Um, and as we studied the issue of human trafficking and we're learning from the experts in the field back in 2007, um, we just we were trying to like find like what was going to be our niche, like what was going to be our focus. And we my sister, who was our former executive director, she and her neighbor put on a big uh, national um anti-trafficking conference. And so we went to that and Polaris was there who owns the national hotline, freed the slaves, a lot of big, group, big groups. And we went up there to learn from them. And in one of the uh, breakout sessions that I went to, the guy was talking about training his desire to train gas station attendants on human trafficking. And like that just made really good sense to me. And I went back to my mom and she had been reading the FBI, um, their big national um, operations where they had always recovered both children and adult victims of sex trafficking. And she said one of the areas that they always recovered victims from, not the only area, but certainly one of the areas was truck stops. And she said, you know, if we could get truck drivers to recognize this and they would and they knew what to do, they would they would do something about it. 
Her parents had owned a small motel in El Paso, Texas when she was growing up. And most of their clientele were truck drivers. And she's like, most of them are really good guys. If they knew, they'd do something. And that was how TAT was born. First as an initiative of Chapter 61 Ministries. And then uh, by 2011, all we were doing all the time was TAT work. And so we disbanded Chapter 61 and TAT became its own 501c3. I mean, that's that's impressive because, you know, how, how many truckers are there in the U.S.? On three million. Three million. Like that is, I mean, that's got to be, that's a pretty good army out there. Yeah. Looking for, for you know, people that might be trafficked. And yeah, I got to, I mean, sort of that, that, that um, truck stop is, I think, kind of the, the old school maybe mentality of, of trafficking, but it's like, that still is, is prevalent out there. I know because of online, you know, the way things escalated online and, and that kind of thing happens and it's a little trafficking maybe looks a little bit differently, but um, what are you, what are your truckers seeing out there today that, that you have a relationship with? Right. So there are, I mean, the trucking industry has 100% embraced this um, fight. Um, and so we have partners within the truck stop industry, as well as uh, trucking companies, trucking schools, all the trucking associations, and then you multiply that with the bus and energy sectors as well. But what you used to see was girls going door to door to door to the trucks and knocking on the cabs and asking if they want a company. Um, that has definitely changed that there's been better security, better lighting, truckers are calling in. And so the traffickers have adapted, obviously. Um, that might still happen in certain locations. But what you're seeing is um, maybe a car or an RV parked out back by the commercial vehicles. Typically, those are up by the store. But if they're back by the commercial vehicles, they might be having an online advertisement or they might have a CV radio and they're advertising that way. Um, it might be a car that pulls in, drops somebody off, leaves, and then comes back 15, 20 minutes later to pick them up. Again, that's your trafficker taking the victim to the buyer and then coming back and picking them up. Um we have heard from truck drivers that they've had um, females approach under the guise of selling magazines and so, or perfume. And so, uh, you know, if security approaches them or if somebody approaches them, they have this like legitimate reason why they're in the lot, right? But then um, as the truckers have discussed, you know, the different magazines or the perfumes or whatever, and they're listening to the sales pitch, that's when sex is offered. And so they're mm -hmm. using that as sort of like, that um, protective thing to, to be missed by security right off the bat. Um, it's also happening in hotels and motels that are near truck stops or strip clubs or adult bookstores or massage parlors. Um, so a lot of times they will build up around these locations where there is a large single male population and sort of, um, and the traffickers will then exploit those locations as well um, to, to get the money. Sure. Do you, I mean, do you see, like you said, you know, you've, you've got better security in some of these truck stops and things and like, you know, so that's part of, that's part of the side of, of the angle where I come from a little bit is from the demand side. My story, you know, I was the one that was contributing to that demand. Was there a, a hurdle to get over with truckers as far, because I got to imagine some of them were contributing to the demand. Right. So was sure. there was there a hurdle to, you know, maybe getting some traction to what you were doing at the very beginning? Yeah. What I would say is it's a societal hurdle. 
And, you know, the trucking yeah. industry is one sector of society. The the societal viewpoint on prostitution is like what? It's a victimless crime. It's the world's oldest profession. Um, and therefore, nobody's getting hurt. And if it's consenting adults, what's the big deal? And that's the hurdle, right? That's the hurdle is saying, actually, it's absolutely not victimless. You know, you know, this whole idea of uh, sex work, prostitution is neither sex nor work. It's a system of exploitation that churns up the most vulnerable amongst us. And because we have layered it with this like genteel language of sex work and clients and, you know, sex acts and services, you know, it's, that's not what it is. I mean, it's this very exploitative type of system, but the old thought process of, you know, victimless, it's no big deal. It's just a blow job. It's just a this, it's just a that. That's just not reality. And so our hurdle was and continues to be um, to a lesser degree. I think people are starting to get it a little bit more is really helping them understand what prostitution actually is and that it is exploitative, that there's almost always somebody on the back end uh, forcing the people to prostitute, almost always a desperation, prior trauma, um, prior sexual abuse that is putting people out there with a lack of other viable options. So that really this, the 98% of the people in prostitution do not want to be there and would like to be out of it. And so when they started to think of it that way, then it's like that curtails, I would say the vast majority of people that buy. Now, there's always going to be those buyers that do not give a care in the world about who they're buying or what they're doing. Yeah, There are people and, and we have had truck drivers come up to us at trucking shows and, and things and they are sobbing hmm. because they have purchased sex acts in the past. And, you know, I, I'd never want somebody to just like stay there, you know, and I don't want people to feel like there's not um, life after that. But as they realized it, I was like, okay, now, you know, and now you do better. And now you tell other people about it as well. And you start talking about it because as we can pull back that curtain and we can really give them the truth about what this industry is that's how we're going to stop it. Men talking to other men, really getting this message out there. And yeah, you repent from it, but there is life forward. Yeah. And, and I've got to say that like this was, that was the, the biggest eye opener for me was learning about who these women are, right? Because as a buyer, like, and I was so deep in my world and in addiction that and being fueled by pornography, right? Right. So it just, you know, it didn't, it didn't matter at the time. But when I was able to break free from it, and then, then I start to hear the facts, like, well, you know, most of these women are trafficked. Like it did, it did, it it was a gut punch because I had never right. considered it, right? And I wish I would have heard it earlier. <laughs> I wish there was a man in my life. Now, but here's the problem, though. Of course, I never told anyone. So right. how, would, how would anyone know? Look at me and think, oh, he's a buyer. I need to talk to him. Like you wouldn't. But I wish those I wish I would have gotten those facts a little bit sooner, because I think that would have I think that, that would definitely make you stop and think. Right. And and that's what when I'm training law enforcement or industry or whoever, I always say, you know, the vast the majority of men don't actually buy sex. 
but the majority of men are quiet on the topic. And I recognize that it doesn't come up at the breakfast table necessarily. No. Um, I always, you know, talk about my own family. We never had an explicit conversation about prostitution growing mm. up. Like we never did. It never came up. It was not part of my world. And so I tacitly received messages, I assume from television or friends or wherever that people in prostitution were there because they were drug addicts or they were just sort of dirty, lower class people and <clears throat> and that their pimps were their boyfriends that sometimes slapped them around, you know, and that was sort of this idea that I had having never had a conversation about it. And that made me view them as somehow lesser in society, or I could easily go along with jokes. It did still lead me into having these sort of like viewpoints going along with the jokes about pimps or, oh, that's pimping, that's pimp, right? You know, going along with laughing about things. And then as you learn the truth, right? As you learn the truth, you're like, whoa. And so what I say is, you know, if men specifically would just start to talk about it. So like when that joke is made, simply saying something like, oh, you know, actually, do you know that most of the people in prostitution don't want to be there? And so if you are purchasing sex, like you're basically, you're doing something against her will, like it opens eyes. And that's not a defensive type of a thing to say. It's calm. It's factual. You're not jumping down anybody's throat. But if those conversations would be had, it would be great. And that was one of the reasons why TAC created our man-to-man campaign. Uh, we had truck drivers coming to us and saying, we're getting into conversations that we don't know how to have or we don't know how to answer. And could you give us another tool? And so that's when we created the man-to-man campaign uh, with a video, with guiding questions that go along. And again, it's mostly men talking to other men about some of these myths surrounding the commercial sex industry. And that's available for free to anybody right on our website on the demand tab, because I think the more conversations that can be had, the more some of that, you know, just sort of the jokes and the myths and the ideas they'll dissipate. And for someone like you back in the day, when you were entrenched in this, maybe somebody wouldn't have come up to you and said, hi, Neil, you need to, because they didn't know, but yeah. if you were overhearing those conversations, those are seeds planted. And, and I think we miss the opportunity when we just stay quiet or we're uncomfortable with it. Like if it would just become like, I can't tell you how much I like bring it up. I used to teach high school and one of my students came to me two years after he had been in my class. So he was a senior. I taught sophomores. And he came back and he's like, you ruined my day. And I was like, I haven't even seen you today. Like, how did I ruin your day? And he said, well, in the locker room, all the guys were telling like pimp and ho jokes. And all I could think about was that's a sex trafficking victim and that's a trafficker. And I said, well, did you say something? And he goes, and I couldn't even laugh. And I said, I'm glad I ruined it for you. But now your job is to go and ruin it for somebody else. And he was like, oh, and like the concept of just maybe bringing that up and being like, hey, guys, did you actually know or, you know, my teacher used to say, you know, that would maybe change things. Yeah. And um and then that's the thing, like, I, I'm not going to be quiet. You know, I think God has put it on my heart to talk about this very bluntly. He gave me a very dramatic testimony to share with people and with, to share with other men specifically. And um, 
you know, so I have the opportunity to, on the demand side, work with Epic Project. I don't know if you're familiar with Epic. I am, yeah. But um, I just had um, David Bennett on uh, on the show a few weeks ago talking about, you know, the work he's done with Epic. He, he brought me into that organization and helping helping to talk to men at the point of yeah. them attempting to buy. And um, I just, you know, I think about if I'm in, if I was in that situation and I called and it was a guy, like I might listen, like it's going to stop me, but it's only going to stop me for probably maybe, you know, maybe just a few months maybe, but then I'll, I, I probably would, um, I might go back to doing it. And that's where, for me, that's where God came in and like br just broke me completely, which very blessed, very blessed for. Um, as you, as you're out there talking with truckers and, you know, and, and having these interactions, what, I mean, do you see any trends out there of what's happening? Is it becoming, is it becoming more prevalent? Is it, or is it just be, because there's more awareness that like, there are more victims being rescued. I'm curious from from your vantage point what you're seeing as far as um, that you know the trafficking business. I guess. Well, I think a lot of it has moved online. Um, whether that's the grooming or the exploitation ex itself, um, OnlyFans is being used heavily. Um, they are exploiting their victims through there, that's already sort of set up like a pyramid scheme. And so they're bringing more and more people in. And then um, either they're recruiting the the women that are already on OnlyFans that are doing it by their own choice. The, the traffickers are looking at them and they'll be like um, maybe their top fan and want an in-person meeting later. And then, you know, that's when they get them. Or they're exploiting some of their younger victims through OnlyFans on some, some of the softer stuff where it's just photos but then they're you know escalating it and then you know getting them out on the streets as well i mean the final the final goal is obviously you know where they can bring in that most money so you're seeing a lot of that online you're also seeing an increase of familial trafficking um mm -hmm. that like skyrocketed during covid and it's even though the pandemic is subsiding the the trend is not and so people have crossed that line so Grandparents, parents, um, uncles, aunts, siblings, they're selling their um, family members either for drugs, for rent, for just a different lifestyle, things that they want. And so you're seeing that. And and obviously, especially if the victim is very young, you can't really put them out there in street-based prostitution without raising a lot of eyebrows. And so you've got a lot of residential brothels um, you know, happening in people's homes and people are going there and they're advertising um, you know, again, online, um, or they're bringing them to certain, certain locations where the buyers are. Sure. You've, you've got a, you've got 3 million truckers in the U S as you mentioned earlier, it's a pretty large base of people to try to reach with this information. Like, how do you, how are you able to do it? Are you, are you having in-person meetings? Are you, I'm assuming you're working with trucking companies, like what's, how do you how do you go after these these truckers and and enlist them into the fight? In every way possible. So we are um, partnered with every trucking association, whether at the national level, the state level, local level. We also uh, have our training online on demand, where they can be certified TAT uh, training. They can just go in individually and do it. We work with companies to embed it in orientation as well as. 
um, you know, ongoing credit hours. We have um, podcasts that we get out there. We go through schools and ask them to make it part of the curriculum before a driver ever, you know, gets their commercial driver's license in the first place. We're going through shippers. And so you have these big companies that may or may not have a private fleet, but they don't, even if they have a private fleet, they don't uh, have enough trucks to move all of their product. And so they contract with a number of trucking companies. And so we will ask shippers to um, basically make it part of their hiring process that the companies that they work with are TAT trained. And that's so awesome. <clears throat> that's another reach. So really any possible level, that's where we're going after. And we have trained 1.5 million. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, they have that kind of um, reach and impact is, is huge. So, um, so, you know, you talk, so speaking of the training, I know that you have some, um, you have some red flags that you share with truckers as part of this educational process. Like what, what are some of those red flags that you share with the trucker? So that as they're out, you know, out, out on the move that they, they understand and they know what to look for. So I mentioned some of them earlier on, um, whether it's that private personal vehicle, like an RV or a, a car out back by the commercial vehicles and people are coming to and from it. Um, if you have um, somebody that is controlling money for somebody else, if when they're talking to somebody, they're, they're referring to their daddy maybe, or having to make a quota, and they might not use the word quota. They might say something like, <clears throat> I've got to make that last 200, or my daddy will be mad, or, well, I can't go home and sleep until I make that last 100, or I just need $50 more, and then I can have dinner. Um, whatever it is, that's the quota because the trafficker puts a quota on every victim. Um, it might be, like I mentioned, that car pulling in, dropping somebody off, leaving, and then coming back. Um, it could be CB chatter about commercial company. Um, almost always you have a trafficking victim there. It could be uh, people going into a motel, only staying for, you know, 20 minutes or something, and then coming back out and getting in their trucker car. Um and, you know, spending the night there or just leaving and not coming back. It can be anything like that. They could have a branding tattoo, um, something that's sort of transactional, whether that's uh, money signs or cash only, daddy's money maker, um, <clears throat> something like that. So uh, not always, but sometimes the traffickers will brand their victims. Do you have an opportunity to to work with law enforcement at all and, and help educate and bring awareness to um, to them on, on yeah. what to look for? That's my job. <laughs> so that's my job within law uh, within TAT. I train law enforcement all across the country um, and in Canada as well. And so we have a four hour in person law enforcement training. I'll be in Vermont next week. Um, we were just in New York, and uh, and that was out in California. So. We're all over um, training on indicators, training on a victim-centered approach, really trying to humanize uh, victims of trafficking for officers, because oftentimes they will have that really hard edge. They will appear to be willing participants in what is happening to them. They're going to speak provocatively. They're going to dress provocatively. They're going to 
be in your face. They're going to tell you, no, that's not my trafficker. That's my man. Like they're going to have, um, they're going to present more like a criminal than they are a victim, but helping them to understand this is a victim and that's just a trauma response. Like that is the defense mechanism and a trauma response from everything that they've experienced. But yeah, we work with law enforcement on adopting models in their state, um, where they can raise awareness within the commercial vehicle industry, but also on interdiction and inspection stops, whether they're pulling over a station wagon, a van, or a big 18-wheeler, no matter who they're pulling over, what indicators to look for. And uh, do you also get into, um, I know there's 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 kind of this shift in mindset, I think, in, in public and especially maybe in, in legislative circles where the law enforcement would typically go after the the traffic victim and that person would end up facing legal repercussions for being forced into this where and then the the buyer slash trafficker sort of was just was called a john and maybe got a little bit of shame but that's about it and left to go you know continue down the road and do do this do you see that conversation occurring more often and do you think that there's going to be an opportunity you know like the, the tide is turning when it comes to how how law enforcement goes after the trafficking side of things? Yeah, well, law enforcement has to enforce the law. And until the laws shift or a policy within an agency shifts, I mean, their job is to do <laughs> the enforcement of the criminal yeah. code. So what we tell them to do is screen. You know, obviously, they're not going to arrest a trafficking victim. But again, it's helping them understand your gut's not going to be able to tell you, is that a trafficking victim or is that a by choice, you know, prostitute is your gut's not going to be able to tell you that. And so you've got to have the proper screening tools to ask the right questions to elicit this. You also need to approach them as a victim and use a victim centered approach to help bring down some of those barriers and walls so that you can actually build your case. So we try to give them those tools to assess and what we we ask when we have command staff in the room specifically is like, if you don't have to arrest them, don't arrest them. That doesn't even have to be a legislative change. That can just be an agency policy because we do talk about traditionally and historically in this country in prostitution cases, we've arrested the prostituted person and almost always they are a victim. Then we learned about human trafficking. We went after the trafficker, but who do we still let go? The buyers. And they yeah. are the absolute core of the entire industry because traffickers for as horrific as they are and and they are very bad they are at the end of the day criminal businessmen and so they are going to where the money is and people are not understanding the people that are making the traffickers rich are your buyers of commercial sex yeah. and so i say you know we talk about do the uc ops that are demand reduction focused go after the buyers we do need to change those criminal codes on the buyers because in a lot of states, it's just a misdemeanor. There's only a couple of states that have made it a felony. Um, and we need to make that a felony so that it has more of a sting. And, you know, the and then law enforcement can, in fact, enforce that. But what we see across the country when we train law enforcement, because we always have a survivor that shares her interactions with law enforcement and a little bit of her story and stuff and, and trains them on, on, you know, how best to approach. <clears throat> they are always 
highly moved and, you know, sometimes crying and just, and they'll say, I've missed that. I, I never knew, you know? And so that's the first part. That's like the first step is really humanizing, helping them to get it. And then, you know, you get to the next step and the next step and the next step. Sure. So actually, um, over the weekend, I had a chance to, um, participate in, um, a citizens Academy with, uh, with, Dan Nash and Allison Phillips from yeah. the Human Trafficking Training Center, which is just fascinating to, to get all that information. But there were a couple, one thing that just stood out to me, and as you were talking about the money aspect, like like one woman can bring a trafficker, I think Dan said like $200,000 a year. Mm -hmm. and, and this guy's got, probably has five women that he's he's controlling. So a million dollars a year. So yeah, so when he when when Dan's talking about you know, like the, the, the people getting out of drugs and they're getting into human trafficking because it's, it's a lot easier, right? A lot easier to make money and people, I mean, even though awareness is starting to rise and, and it's, people are starting to put some attention to it. It's still probably light years behind where we are and people looking at drugs or, or things like that. Right. I mean, it's, it's a big ship to turn around and yeah. it, it takes time but we just keep chipping away. And, and I do believe that it is starting to happen where people are starting to get it. But, you know, there's just a lot more work to do. But, you know, absolutely, there's money to be made. And there's less, there's less interaction with law enforcement. Like if I'm a trafficker selling drugs, I have to actually be there to make the drug deal. Yeah. When I am trafficking people, once I've broken them in, I don't even have to be around. Yeah. Um, if they're on automatic, that's one of the terms they use. If they're on automatic, they can even be in another state and still comply with what the trafficker is saying because they're so mentally chained to them. And so if anybody's getting arrested, it's the victim. And right. that's that's the part that has to, has to change. Well, and then I got to imagine that when the victim's getting arrested, she's probably not offering up. Mm -mm. Like you said, she, it's, it's just my boyfriend or, or whoever they're not offering up as, as a, as a victim right. anyways, right. Because of what they've experienced. Right. And that's, that's the challenge. Yeah. That's the challenge because either out of just sheer fear or a trauma bond, you know, or they really do believe the trafficker loves them or the trafficker has their child back somewhere else. And so that's leverage or, you know, somebody else is being threatened in their family. There's a lot of reasons why they're not going to say anything. And then they also, I, I would say this, you know, people in prostitution, whether they're trafficked or they're there through lack of other viable options, they were raised in the same society you and I were. So they have all of that shame of being in prostitution and they have internalized all of the messages that they're receiving, whether that's from their trafficker, every buyer that uses them, every person in society that looks down upon them, they've internalized that shame. They've internalized that sense of worthlessness. They've internalized that they are not worth helping. And so when that first approach is made, they've got all of the fear and the trauma bond and or whatever, you know, tie they have with the trafficker. But on top of that, they have just this deep sense of I'm not even worth your time. 
And yeah. so all of this sort of complicates these cases. Not impossible to overcome, but they complicate the cases. Sure. I was uh, about maybe uh, six, eight months ago, I had a, a former um, a brothel owner and, in, in you know, and in, in someone who's a prostitute mm -hmm. on the show and talking to her about it. And she's since has gotten out is now an, an advocate for uh, for um, to help people get out of trafficking. Right. But she said one of the most interesting things that she said was because she was not trafficked, but she said poverty, poverty was her pimp. Yep. It's just like that just blew me away because she she couldn't she couldn't escape it because the money was such a lure and she had no other alternative to make ends meet but to prostitute herself. Right. And you know, that's that's the part that's hard. And you know, I just I wish as a I wish as a society we could have different conversation about this and not celebrate this idea of sex work, which people right. celebrate and think, oh, I you know, we talked about OnlyFans earlier and these teenage girls can go on there and think they can make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and maybe some of them are making money on there, but, but at what cost? Right. You know, that's, that's the hard part, I think. Yeah. One of the best books I've ever read is paid for by Rachel Morin. Um, and she would tell you, she was, she was, um, she's a survivor. She could, says she is a survivor of the sex trade. She does not claim being a trafficking victim. Although it, under our standards, she was trapped, she was um, exploited in Ireland. Um, but in the US, we would have called her a CSEC or a commercially sexually exploited child because she was 15 mm. when she first entered trafficking. And it was through lack of viable options, um, massive dysfunction and trauma and abuse at home. And so here she is out on the streets. In her book, she really does a fantastic job of talking about it doesn't matter how you get in whether it's your lack of other viable options whether it's through a trafficker or whether it's quote-unquote by choice maybe that two percent that's there we all exit the same we all exit with extreme trauma multiple rapes um you know a different viewpoint on life on sex on love on you know, so many things we exit with higher rates of PTSD and mental health issues. We exit with extreme uh, depression and anxiety. We exit oftentimes with substance dependency. So how you get in, people aren't thinking, well, but I'm choosing this. I'm, I'm putting these pictures out there. I'm in control. The exit and what it does to you that you're not really aware of, that's that's the part that nobody's really counting the cost on this. Um, and they're not seeing also where the traffickers are coming in to exploit. And they like OnlyFans traffickers, too. I mean, they're like, man, she's already doing the work for me. She's breaking sure. herself down. She's crossing over these lines of inhibition. It'll be easy once I have them. I won't even have to work so hard. So they're sort of setting themselves up for that. And, you know, in societies that have fully decriminalized or legalized prostitution, you know, which there's always people that think, oh, we'll just legalize it and then it'll be regulated and then we won't have trafficking anymore or whatever. Like, look at the stats in every country where they've legalized or fully decriminalized it. You've seen an increase of sex trafficking. Why? Because people are not signing up to be a part of the exploited class. They're signing up to buy sex. They're signing up to be a manager or a brothel owner, which is your trafficker, right? They're signing up to make money off of it or to get sex out of it. 
but people aren't signing up to go and work in these mega brothels. They're not signing up to be a part of this. That's where the force fraud and coercion comes in and the lack of other viable options. And what we see is this normalization, this normalization of objectification, this normalization of transactional sex. And it comes at an extremely high cost to society when that viewpoint is there everybody that we see in prostitution or everybody, what is the assumption then? Oh, they want to be there. It's legal. It's decriminalized. They want to be there. And so there's no help brought to bear. There's nobody even questioning, do you want to be there? Because, well, of course it's, it's, it's legal. Therefore you want to be right. Like it just takes away even the idea that somebody might be forced. And it also takes law enforcement's ability to do anything away in these systems because they would have to have the same onus of evidence that they would to go into a restaurant and do a raid or to go into a hair salon and do a raid, right? And so they couldn't just pull somebody over and say, are you okay? Is somebody forcing you to do this? No, you would have to have all of this evidence. It, it leaves victims without recourse. And what you see is an increase of victimhood, an increase of sex trafficking in these locations. So with the sex work movement, the pro-prostitution lobby here in the U.S., and this like push with OnlyFans and all this online exploitation and no, but I'm choosing it. I don't see, I mean, they just do not see the bigger picture. <laughs> they do not see the bigger picture and they do not see the impact of these choices. Do you, do you see, do you see more of a pro legalizing prostitution movement across the U S in, in different state legislators? Oh yeah. There's, I mean, I think it's popped up in already nine state legislatures. It's wow. been defeated, but yeah. these bills are coming and they're coming hard. And this started where you saw a big push was end of 2019 on through, and they're still coming up and, you know, the anti-trafficking movement, uh, heavily world without exploitation is one of the big leaders on trying to beat down this uh, legislation as it continues to pop up. But yeah, I mean, you're just getting more and more bills introduced all under the guise of public health, um, all under the guise of protection for women. Uh, it's, it's feminist rhetoric that is masking total misogyny, right? Like it's right. just like we're saying it's women's empowerment. We're saying it's protection for women, safety for women, but really it's just making it easier for men to exploit said women. So I, yeah, I mean, I would say the pro prostitution lobby is doing a darn good job. And then, like I said, the rise of OnlyFans and it like, it, it grew exponentially with COVID. And those numbers are continuing to increase. I think it was like 17 million or 30 million users. I can't even remember the exact, but it was somewhere in the double digits. And then it was like 121 million users. Um, it just jumped in 2020. Um, and so you're seeing this increase, but it's that type of, but this is safe, but this isn't really, this isn't really prostitution. Well, this isn't really this. I'm in control. There's no exploitation taking place here. That type of mindset and then people defending it, unfortunately, 
this feeds the pro-prostitution lobby because they'll sex worker, the sex work lobby will say, see, these are just independent sex workers. And you're like calling them trafficking victims or exploited people. And they're not, they're just paying their rent. Right. And right. so they'll use those types of stories. So it's, it's very frustrating. I mean, you can read all of their stuff. They, they have a very well-heeled, well-funded movement. I have no doubt. <clears throat> and I guess I don't know if this is in Time Magazine. I think, I think I might have been in Time Magazine. They did this piece on OnlyFans, OnlyFans creators. And so they're trying to equate these, these women who are, you know, taking off their clothes and, and doing, you know, and, and getting men to pay for them. Um, like the same thing as like a YouTube creator. Yeah. You know, and trying to conflate the two and, you know, again, just kind of normalize it in society. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's a dangerous slope and, you know, I, I, I can see it coming. So I'm glad there's people like you and, and Dan and Allison and others who are already out there, you know, sort of, um, trying yeah, to, we'll, to we'll fight it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Hey, but Hey, before I let you go, um, what's, so what is, what do you, what's the future of, of TAT look like? Have you thought about where it goes from here? Yeah, well, we still have a lot of work to do in the industries we work with. Um, we still have truck drivers that we haven't reached. We still have bus drivers and school bus uh, drivers around the country in Canada that we haven't reached. Um, same with the energy industry. So really just continuing to deepen our programming. But we also are wanting to, you know, look at and uh, leverage some of our partnerships with corporations on, you know, just getting this word out there. How can they within their own um, systems of play, their own um, areas where their corporations are, how can they lessen vulnerabilities to trafficking um, in their own communities? How can they um, work to level the playing field for um, people that are disproportionately trafficked? And that, that's your BIPOC community. Um, how can they, you know, so really it's, there's just so many really cool things and helping to broaden our language to a lot of the corporate people that we work with. So some of the trucking companies like a Walmart or a Bridgestone, or that's not that's a tire company, but you know, obviously there's a lot of corporate people. So like, how can we broaden this language and get everybody within these companies that we, that we're partnered with to really take on this issue? I mean, you think of the exponential impact of getting everybody focused on this, everybody donating to their local food pantries, everybody, you know, out there trying to find ways to lessen vulnerabilities in their own communities. I mean, we will cripple traffickers. If I always say trafficking is an everywhere problem, so it's an everybody solution. But I also have always said, you know, where are the good people? There's more of us than there are traffickers. Traffickers seem to know and go to people that need food or housing or a job or whatever. And they're providing those things. If we would, we can't do everybody each individually, but if I can go to this person and say, Hey, do you need to talk with no agenda in mind? Hey, do you need something, a meal with no agenda? Yeah. Like we cripple the traffickers that way. Yeah. And it's and and like we talked about earlier, I think it, it does all come back to demand. Right. And, and how do we cut the demand? And um, you're, you're sort of working on the, the byproduct of it where where I think men have to step up and, and other people on on like organizations like Exodus Cry who yeah. are trying to, you know, slow the demand for pornography. 
because that is just the, the jet fuel that's being poured all over this. Um, that's Absolutely. fueling this demand. And that's where we've got to, that's where we've got to start. So that way <laughs> we don't need, you know, we, we can focus your resources somewhere else. Right. But it is what it is for now. Right. And I would, and I would say within the trucking industry, within the bus industry, within these corporations, there are a lot of men. Yes. And again, when we open their eyes to this issue, and they begin to speak about it and they begin to have conversations within their own families, but also within their sphere of influence, within their communities and within their corporations or their companies. This is where the change will happen. I 100 percent agree with that. And it's part of it is that eye opening, that awareness and then starting to nuance and level it out like, OK, well, we have had that initial conversation. We know what trafficking is. But now let's look at some of these things that fuel it like porn, like um, you know, buying like just all of the myths around prostitution yeah. and sort of peeling back those layers. And it is, it is a layered nuanced response and we need everybody in this fight. Kyla. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. I, I truly appreciate it. And best of luck to you going forward. Keep sending prayers your way that you're going to be able to continue to make an impact. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak, Neil. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks again to Kyla for coming on Unmasked this week. I appreciate all the work that she's doing with Truckers Against Trafficking. And I'm also going to put a link to their man-to-man -man campaign down in the show notes below. Check it out and share it with the men in your life. All right, coming up next week, um, we're going to stay on the theme of, of sex trafficking. We're talking to Heidi Olson. Heidi is a pediatric nurse, and she also owns her own consulting firm, Paradigm Shift, and she's on the front lines of this battle against sex trafficking every single day. Not only is she um, looking for kids that come into the ER and come into the hospital and, and being able to identify what kids could potentially be impacted by, whether it's sex trafficking, whether it's uh, online pornography or, and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but she's also uh, she's sharing her expertise uh, with and helping to train law enforcement agencies all over the country. She's also testified in front of Congress on Capitol Hill. She's also working in the state of Missouri to to change laws. And she is she's an amazing individual. She's got an incredible story to tell, and I'm just very blessed and honored to be able to share it. And that's coming up next week on Unmasked. All right, everybody, I I'm glad you're here. Thank you for tuning in this week. Truly appreciate it. And remember. Jesus did not come to hang out with the saints and the righteous. He came to hang out with the sick and the sinners of the world, just like you and just like me, but not to revel in our sin, but to call us out of it. Have a great week, everybody.